0: my name is Ken um, I'm the pastor of, of Crosswinds here and I'm I'm so glad that everybody is with us this morning whether you're online with us or you're here in person I, I want you to know that that you are loved and uh, we live in a very fractured and divided world today but this is a place where you're always, going to be loved. It doesn't matter whether you're Republican or you're a Democrat, whether you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you're black or white or or brown or whether you identify as gay or straight or something else, whether you're a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer, whether you love Jesus now or you're not sure about him yet. You're going to be loved here. Um, The reason is our theology in the Bible starts with love. You know, There are some people that think it starts with sin, with the depravity of man. And honestly, history gets there pretty quick. Um, uh, But before that happens, there's a loving creator that kneels down in the dust and forms us in his own image. And then he gets up really close and (sighs) breathes life into us and he makes us. In his own image. That means you're special. That means. That you're not an accident. They have a purpose. That you're dearly loved. Look around the room. That means look around at everybody. That means that they are too. That every person. God loves. And that love is where things start before our sin, and before our depravity. Um, Jason, why don't you turn off all other mic channels but this. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God, our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, Before him in love. And if you will meditate on that verse, I bet you will see that it was God's design from the beginning of time to love you, to have a relationship with you. In love, he planned our redemption even before we departed from him into sin, before he ever created us. Love was his design. So this morning, I want to tell you a story. In my own words, from Luke chapter 10. See, Jesus was just kicking back, and he was celebrating with his disciples. They were celebrating that that God was revealing his kingdom to some ordinary fishermen and tax collectors. And then all of a sudden, this lawyer stands up and he says, Hey, Mr. Rabbi, what I got to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, what's in God's word? What do you understand about it? Well, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it right, dude. Do that, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to show how good he was, says, hey, it was my neighbor. And Jesus said, let me tell you a little story. There was this man who went down the road. Now, it was the wrong road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he got jumped. And they stripped the man, and they beat him, and they left the guy half dead. And luckily, there was a priest going down that same road. But you know how it is. He pretended not to see him, and so he did nothing. And then there was one of our own brothers. This guy was a Levite. He walked over and he looked at him, and he saw the guy all bleeding and naked and stuff, and he figured it was not his problem, and so he walked away. But then there was this Samaritan guy. You know those guys who are usually our enemies? That guy, he felt sorry for the guy, and he helped him out, and he bound up his wounds, and he wasted some of his expensive wine and his or oil as medicine for the guy. And then he set him on his own ride, and he walked alongside him, found an inn, and then he acted as his nursemaid to the guy all night. And the next day, the dude pulls out this wad of cash and he gives it to the manager and says, Take care of the guy, and I'll be back in a couple of days after my business trip, and I'll pay you for any other expenses the guy has. Then he looks at the lawyer and he says, Now let me ask you a question. Which guy of the three? Proved to be Mr. Rogers to the guy. The lawyer said, I guess the one who showed him a little love. Jesus said to the lawyer, you go do the same thing. Now, I told you the story kind of in my own words first. Because this story is part of our cultural vernacular. You know, today we say somebody is a good Samaritan. You know, there are motor clubs and hospitals that share that name. Sometimes there's a a danger with being too familiar with the story because we can look at it religiously and even find our pride in it. But I, I think Jesus originally told this story to a prideful religious guy to wreck his heart with the gospel. So the title of my message is, What Shall I Do? The simple answer, friends, is love. Now, I know it's a simple answer, but I know doing it is a different thing. So let's look at the story again. Verse 25 says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when there's a lawyer involved, it's usually not a good thing. The man stands up as a sign of respect to to ask a question of the teacher. And it seems to be a sincere question, but I'm not sure. It's a very important existential question, though, that many people ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? But our words always give us away. They give our heart away. Now, Jesus has just been rejoicing with his disciples. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, of earth That you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And yet this man, a man of knowledge and religion, wants to know, what shall I do? And Jesus has just said his kingdom is a gift to the humble. And yet this proud man is asking how he might achieve something that Jesus just said has to be received. Beloved. Here is a simple way that you can share the gospel. See, all of world religions are basically the same. They are about do. And the gospel is about done. Religion is about do. What we must do as man to earn favor with God. Jesus' gospel is about what God has done to give us grace or favor because of his love. And when Jesus hears this man, he knows this man is thinking about his own due. And he's ready to have a gospel conversation with him. See, the man already believes in eternal life. This man believes in God. He's a student of God's word. But he believes he needs to perform in some way to have it. And most people actually are like this. The word inherit has to do with quality of life. From this Jewish man's perspective, life was eternal. And that's what the Bible says. Life is eternal. And and the question he's asking is, will he be blessed by God in eternity? What is the quality of his life in eternity? Will he be punished or will he be in glory? I think that's most people's question. See, the Bible says God has put eternity into the heart of man in Ecclesiastes 3.11. See, so most of us have a sense that there is something more after we die. The question is, will it be a positive outcome? So Jesus doesn't answer him. He, he asks a question, which is what we should do. What is written in in the law? What's written in the Bible? How do you read it? See, interesting. Jesus doesn't offer an opinion. He doesn't give an opening comment with his opinion, which is what most people do when asked with that question. He says, what's in the word of God? And they ask, what's the man's understanding of the word of God? See, gospel conversations are supposed to be conversations. And and most people start talking way too quickly. It's better to ask a question. You know, if you're doing all the talking, it's really not a conversation. You need to find out where people are coming from. The first question is good. Do they have any knowledge of God's word? Often we're afraid to have conversations because we feel like the other person's going to be better equipped, better armed than we are. The reality is most people out there are biblically illiterate or gospel illiterate. And, and one of the best ways to have a gospel conversation, I found sometimes with people is to say, if they seem like they're really knowledgeable, say, could you please explain the gospel to me? And I've had people do that to me and I say, wow, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe that either. Can I show you what I believe? Because they usually have a false idea of what the gospel is. Um, you know, sometimes people are really prideful like that. They want to explain it to you. So let them. And then say, show them, oh, no, this is what the Bible says. And, and sometimes they just have not, don't have knowledge. On um, The second question uh, he asks is, how do you read it? You, you can learn a lot in those two questions. So the man answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this guy was a brilliant student of the law. He summed up God's word perfectly. He did a mashup between Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19:18. So he'd either been listening to Jesus's teaching and he wanted to flatter him by parroting back or he had good instruction himself. And it was similar to how Jesus had summed it up in, in verses like Matthew twelve thirty. So Jesus told him, hey, you've answered correctly. Do that and you will live. Now, you can almost imagine the lawyer's chest puffing up with pride when he hears Jesus' words. You have answered correctly. Jesus just affirmed his doctrine. This man had won. It's okay to affirm people when they get things right. But... Then Jesus did say something at the end, something about do. And then he connected it with this as a prerequisite to eternal life. And what Jesus was saying, the answer is simple. You just need to keep it the law, but keep it perfectly. See, God's law is a perfect standard, Mr. Lawyer. And if you want to do something, then you have to do it perfectly. And so the man is starting to understand he might have caught himself in his own religious trap. And verse 29 says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? And this is what the religious will always have to do to get out of a trap. Justify themselves, making themselves right before God. How do you do that, really? How do you make yourself right before God? With your own words, with a lot of your own words. That's how you do it. But do our own words really matter in a court? Most of your lawyers will tell you to shut up, honestly. Your own words, won't they? Who's ever been to court? Your lawyer will tell you to shut up because our own words don't really matter. I got a speeding ticket once in a small town near Galena, and I was standing there waiting to face and argue with the judge about how unfair my ticket was. And there was another guy ahead of me in a $500 suit who also had a ticket. And he tried to tell the judge he didn't have time for all of this because he was a big-deal lawyer from Chicago, and he impatiently threw out some legal fancy words that I didn't understand. And the judge simply said something like this, you aren't from around here, boy, and this is my courtroom, and you are in contempt. And that man was hauled out of there for the night and put in jail. And I decided to be humble. And seek the mercy of the court. Now that was just a little court. Not the court of the almighty. How is any of us going to justify ourselves. When it comes to a a perfectly um, loving being. God. But that's exactly what this lawyer attempts to do with Jesus. And who is my neighbor. If we can define who my neighbor is. Correctly then. I might be okay. Most people with a due perspective on their eternity do this. If you ask them, will God accept them in heaven, they will say something like, I've been good to most people. I ain't killed nobody yet. That's the attitude. Okay, so you accomplished not breaking one of God's commands so far. Yay for you. But you're ignoring what the lawyer ignored in his question to justify himself. The first part of the statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, if you really love God, you will love what you created in his image, which is others. Even the fact that you're asking this question is condemning you. The reality is that most Jews felt that it was their duty to love their other Jewish brothers and to treat them well. But they felt it was also their moral duty to hate their enemies, the people outside of their own people. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, he tried to correct their religious thinking back to God's design for loving perfection. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he is making a rise on the evil and on the good. And he saying sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing for others? Do not even the unbelievers, the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So I would be very careful, Mr. or Mrs. Lawyer out there, if you're trying to define your neighbor by race or politics or sexual preference or nationalism or social class, to justify yourself. Because that's simply doo-doo. To continue... This gospel conversation, the lawyer tells a parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, we hear in our culture, a poor guy got robbed. But the lawyer and his friends and some of the disciples, they're hearing, what a foolish idiot. He went down the wrong road in the wrong neighborhood and got robbed see historians like Josephus tell us this was a dangerous road there were caves along that route where bandits would hide out and even troops that went through that road road um, were well armed and ready so they're thinking yeah it's sad this guy got beat up but it's kind of his fault he deserved it so this is even more justification for not being loving towards this man and you know, every time I've taught this text in a Bible study, conversations pop up, discussions have broke out, Dis- justifications for not helping someone based on the poor decisions that person has made that put them in the situation that they were in. Every time I've taught this, the command to love from God's word in the Greek is the word agapeo. It is a choice to love without condition. To do love, not to feel love. Feelings and doing love are two different things. God decided to love us, though our sin is something he hates. It's nothing to do with feelings. Um, it's the same word is in this famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, God does not look down on men and women and, and, and that are half dead in their sin and say, huh, it's their fault, they sin. Instead, he comes down and he decided to love us and to rescue us. But we often justify ourselves because of someone's mistakes in life, not acting in love towards them. But we are commanded to love our neighbor exactly the way he loves us. Now, by chance, A priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus gives a little hope to these religious listeners. A priest comes by. Surely, a priest will help this poor half-dead man. After all, it would be his moral duty as a man of God to stop and help this poor guy. But he just looks, pretends not to see, and passes by. I'm sure he had a lot of good justifications for not showing the man a little love. After all. Uh, if he tried to minister to the man, it would make him ceremonial unclean because of all the blood. He, then he would not be able to do his job, and he would not be able to help all the people he helped. The needs of the many out outweigh the needs of the few. After all, it, it, it might be dangerous. This this might, man might have been left out there as bait for robbers, and then he would get jumped. And, and, and uh, who would care for his family? After all. He didn't really know first aid, and so he would just pray for him. That was that was his spiritual gift. So then, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, passed by on the other side. Now, some of the listeners in the story would 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 were not surprised by the priest because they figured that professional cl- clergy were corrupt. But surely, now a good Levite boy, a, a fellow citizen, he would help out. See, Levites were not priests. They 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 didn't receive land as an inheritance like the other tribes, but they served in the, the temple religious systems and, and they were supported by it. And so they were servants. And, and so surely this guy would come over and help. And he did come over and he and he got a, a closer look at the guy. He looked at the guy and, and and figured, oh, this isn't his problem after assessing the situation. And and so for the listening Jews, that's strike two for the religious strike 2 for the jew team 2 for the uh, strike 2 for those that knew the law and should have helped their obvious neighbor a fellow jew but they had rationalized why they could not you know what it is to rationalize it's a rational lie we tell ourselves so that we don't feel guilty ah I'm late for work at the temple. I'm wearing new clothes. My wife will get mad at me if I stop and I'm late for dinner. You know, this is really not a safe place to stop and help anybody. I, I really don't know what to do anyways. I, I wouldn't know how to help. Ah, he's already half dead. Um, if he, if he makes it, somebody else will come along. That's ah, hopeless anyways. This guy's rude. He doesn't ask for help. He's unconscious. Jesus continues the story. But a Samaritan, as he journeys, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, that's a big but. But their enemy, a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan to them was not a smiley guy with a halo on a decal. To the Jews, the Samaritans were trailer trash. They were unclean heathens. Some rabbis taught that if you saw a Samaritan woman in labor, that you weren't to go help her because it was a sin to bring another Samaritan into the world. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It was probably good that this man was half dead because if he was more conscious, he probably would not even let the Samaritan help him. One, one reason the Samaritans were hated by the Jews was because of their bad theology. Even Jesus agreed their theology was bad in, in a conversation with a woman in John 4.22. But the Samaritan, while he, he did not have knowledge, he had something the priest and the Levite, these religious guys, didn't have. Obedience to God's basic law. He did love, which was more important. See, they all saw the same information, a half-dead guy. But this guy had something different, compassion. In the Greek, it's the word splaktonizomai, which means to be moved with one's, to one's bowels with compassion. Ancient people thought the bowels were the seat of love and pet pity in the body. We often say we feel something in the gut. This man felt something when he saw this man, even though this was his enemy. He loved him as himself. He treated this man with love and dignity as if he would want to be treated. And so he went over to him and he bound him up. He bound up his wounds and he poured oil on him and he poured wine and he set him on his own animal and he brought him. To an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and and he gave them to the innkeeper and and to take care of him. And he said, "Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Language reveals a lot. With the priest and the Levite, they just saw a problem. Samaritan saw a person, and he went to him. See, loving people means presence. Ministering to people means presence. It's all about presence in people's lives. It's giving someone your time and your attention. That's that's how we show love to one another. He had to get close enough to discover the wounds in the man. If we're going to have gospel conversation, we need to get close enough to people to understand their wounds. He used what he had He had oil with him to soothe the wounds. He had wine with him to disinfect the wounds. He may not have had much to offer, but he offered what he had. He set the man on his own donkey, and he walks alongside. Loving others always requires inconvenience and sacrifice. The Samaritan might have been late for dinner with his family. He might have missed a couple of days of work. He might have missed his kid's soccer game. His wife might have gotten upset at him. Ministry never comes when you have time. It often comes at the worst possible moment of time. And that's when you learn what it's really like to love when you must sacrifice something. He stays up all night with his enemy. When it's an enemy territory, there's risk, and he pays enough to denari to cover a couple weeks of lodging around here. That'd be like paying a thousand dollars to cover two 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 weeks at a local hotel. And he says, "Keep the tab open, and I will pay the rest." When I come back, just just take care of my friend. And even when he delegates the responsibility to to somebody else, he stayed personally involved. Not like the priest. Who maybe prayed from afar with a holy nod. Bless you, my son. Beloved, our prayer is important. And I encourage you to do it often. Encouraging words are important. Give many of them. But God's word says, if a brother is sick or a sister is, or brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? James 2.16. This is why, friends, we have a benevolence fund here at church. And that's why we should give to it anytime we're able and, 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 and help others. If you're a Christian, you should never say to a suffering person, my, my thoughts are with you. Because frankly, that means nothing. Unless you're a psychic, and that's really creepy. Positive words and thoughts alone do not feed hungry bellies or, 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 or clothe children. Doing what this man did Reaching into his wallet and and sacrificing some Starbucks over the next week or two does. Notice, he did not give a limit to the innkeeper on the cost. His concern was on the care. The cost didn't matter. Love bakes and and floods. And then hands-on Africa... Um, that that serves places like Sierra Leone, which I'm going to be going to soon, which is is just about as poor. And and you can help those organizations by donating to them through us. And any time you have the ability, you can help feed hungry people that are made in God's image. You can give to our benevolence funds, and our deacons use that to help local people when they're in crisis who are struggling. And Crosswinds, I, I, I do want to say that you do a wonderful job. We have been one of the... Uh, uh, more generous churches in our areas, um, being like Samaritans in all kinds of wonderful ways, and, and and that's good. And I continue in that. But there is a temptation for this lawyer and and for us to think that doing kind to act for others is something that we need to do to to gain eternal life. And and and. and And so the lawyer, the Jesus asked the lawyer a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, come on, Jesus, isn't it obvious? Well, yeah, it is. But sometimes asking an obvious question in a gospel conversation helps a person see the answer. It helps them see it more personally and clearly especially if they have to say it out loud. And and, and and Jesus is saying something here about God's love, that it is freely given, but that it also is proved. See, people talk about unconditional, the unconditional love of God. And, and sometimes the way they talk about it is if, if love is easy. But it's not easy. The unconditional love of God wasn't easy. It's really not without condition. See, God's love had a cost. The the cost was his innocent son dying for our sin. God's love for us was proved once and for all on the cross. But God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus is asking this man for proof that he loves God. And he and the man had skipped right over that when he started qualifying his neighbor. And so he's saying, "Come on. This is personal. Ask me to prove how I feel about God." You know. So he's asking This is an illustration about how this man is really feeling, how he really feels about God, not what he says doctrinally. See, 1 John 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love a God who he has not seen And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. Before you try to qualify the word brother in your mind, it means fellow man, including sister, pastor, boss, husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter. To prove you love God, friends, what shall you do? Love. Now when Jesus asked the lawyer this question, he's wrecked. There's no way any further he can justify himself. There's no more he can say in his doo-doo. All the things he had trusted in, his nation, his religion, even his good deeds were shown to be insufficient by this story. To achieve eternal life because none of them produced what was needed love and the, the lawyer didn't even have enough mercy in his heart to answer Jesus' question well in verse 37 he said the one who showed him mercy couldn't even say Samaritan did you notice that? And then Jesus says, you go do likewise. Man's cultural hatred was so strong, he can barely even give his enemy credit for his mercy to his own countrymen. And Jesus drops the wrecking bomb on the dew of the lawyer. You go. Do what the Samaritan Now, the lawyer would have been wearing a phylactery, which would be a leather pouch with scripture in it, strapped to his head to show the world how obedient to God he was. And one of the scriptures in that phylactery would be Deuteronomy 6 that said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in an instant, he was wrecked. His religion meant nothing. It was all his do was doo do, because there was really no love Nothing he could do could gain him eternal life. He did not really love God. He did not really love his fellow men. See, the, the story of the Samaritan is not one which anybody should have religious pridefulness in, in their ability to do good work for the poor. It's a story that should wreck us all, just like it's wrecking this lawyer to show us how desperate our need for the gospel is. Friends, I want to close my time today with a parallel story from my own life that absolutely wrecks me. When we were remodeling this building, there was a crew of volunteers coming to meet me here to help me paint so we could open on time for our first worship. And it was a desperate time. We were rushing in a month to get this. Um, building ready so we were under a crunch and at the time I was a bivocational pastor and I was traveling from my other job trying to get here in time to, to meet the volunteers a- and I was driving along Bountain Road in Brook, and I saw a skinny man staggering walking shirtless sunburned he was tattooed with kind of demonic looking tattoos all over his body he had um, piercings all over his face big gauges on his ears and he was strung out on something he did not look well I could tell he was in trouble, barely able to stand. It was about noon. It was about 95 degrees out. And I was in the center lane too far to like just pull on the side of the road. It was awkward to stop. And I thought, man, this is going to be messy. I don't have time. And I've got important work to do. And so I drove past. And then the story of the Samaritan started to fill my head. And I couldn't keep driving, and I pulled off, and I turned around, and I drove back, and got back where the man was, and and I I, I saw him laying on the ground throwing up, and I leaned him up against a, a light post, because I was afraid he was going to choke on his vomit. He was really out of it. I tried to keep talking to him to keep him from choking, and because uh, he you know he was just really out of it, and I I, I was just trying to keep him focused and another person had stopped and they must have called 911 because an ambulance quickly came and I was just staying with him until the paramedics got him on the stretcher and put an IV on him because he was low on fluid. And as they started to take him away, a, a paramedic came up to me and thanked me for stopping and said, good thing you stopped. The man would have died if you hadn't. And it wrecked me because I didn't stop because of my love. I stopped because of Jesus' love, my love for the man was not great enough to stop me. But I'm grateful that Jesus love was. The scripture says we love because he first loved us. First John four nineteen. If Jesus had not done something for me, that half dead man would have died. But in an instant, I cared nothing about this building anymore. This building is kindling. That man mattered because he is eternally made in God's image. Whenever Jesus uses me in somebody's life, I am wracked. I am humbled because I know it's his love. Not mine that does it. The Samaritan story is the gospel because it is meant to wreck us all. Because it shows us where we all come short of God's perfect love. And if we have to rely on our own due, we're done. We're dead meat in hell forever. But instead, Jesus is our Samaritan who came to us in our enemy territory. He came to those who were supposed to be his own brothers, like this lawyer, but instead they despised and rejected him because they were religiously prideful. But that didn't stop him from bringing his good news to the poor and binding up their broken hearts and proclaiming liberty to those who were captive. And then on the cross, it was all done For us. He said it was finished. His love was sufficient to cover all the debt for all our depravity. And on the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb. He did what no holy religious man could ever do. He paid our tab in full. He now has been given all authority to give us freely our inheritance of eternal life as true sons and daughters of God made to live in his image which is love. Say, will you turn from your own due? And will you believe in his love for you and go be loved of the world, if you're still asking, what shall I do, simply receive his love, and then you will be given the power to really do the do. Let us pray. Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness and mercy. I thank you for saving me thank you for saving that man. I thank you for how you've used this church and the people of this church to bring salvation to many. And how you use your church throughout the world to bring life because of your love. Father, if there's anybody here today that has not received your love, may they turn to you today and find life by accepting the free gift of your love. They can't do it themselves. It's already been done. They just need to accept it. Accept your forgiveness, your love and mercy, and then go share it. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would do that today. Let <laughs> not stop being lawyers. Let them stop making justifications and rationalizations. Let you do it for them. Let you be their advocate with the Father. Let your blood wash away the stain of their sin. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray.